Father, thank you for allowing us to open your word right now. What a privilege, God, to have your words. God, it's such a privilege to get to get this glimpse into your life, Lord Jesus, on this earth. God, help us to see glorious things. Just like we, we, we sang a moment ago, God, I asked for that, that you would glorify your name. Glorify your name in our midst, Lord. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Give us soft, broken, make us tender-hearted before you as your word comes to us. Please, God, empower me to preach your word and the ability that you supply. So that in every single bit of this, God, that you would get glory. And I pray for the hearers. I pray that you would make them like those Bereans that we read about. That they would receive your word with readiness, with eagerness. And they search your scriptures daily to see if they're true. Help us to worship you, Lord, during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alright, so we're at chapter 12, verse 35 through 40. Uh, I want to try to set this, before we read it, I want to try to set this passage into its larger context, okay? So I want to kind of zoom out to a bigger picture here. So on your sheet it says there, uh, it says, what a day. Because this is a pretty amazing day that we get insight into, into the life of Jesus. This is an amazing day. You can start back in chapter 11, verse 20. And run all the way to the end of our section today. And this was a, an amazing day in the life of Jesus. In fact, this is one of the last days. In just a couple of days, He's going to be crucified for our sins. So this is one of the last days before His crucifixion. And it was an, an amazing day. Okay, So if you just kind of zoom out to the bigger picture where we're going here. Jesus woke up this day in a town called Bethany. And He woke up and He headed on a two mile journey into Jerusalem. And on the way... He taught His disciples an amazing lesson about faith. And He used a fig tree that He withered with a word just the day before to teach them this lesson. And they're on the way into Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem and Jesus begins to teach the mass multitudes that are there to celebrate this Passover week. And He begins to teach these people in the temple in Jerusalem. And then Jesus begins to get wave after wave after wave of attacks against, against Him from the religious leaders of this time. They're trying to discredit Him. They're trying to shame Him. And they come to Him in the temple while He's teaching. And they attack Him again and again and again. The first people we see attack Him in chapter 11 are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They attack Him. They begin to question His authority. They say, who are you? And where's your authority to ride in Jerusalem as the Zechariah 9-9 king? Who gives you the authority to do that a couple days back? And by the way, who gives you the authority to clean out this temple and rebuke people and make people leave? Who gives you the authority to do that? And they begin to attack Jesus over this issue. Jesus puts those guys in their place pretty much. And the next group that comes along are the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they seek to catch Jesus in His words. They're coming at Him. This is an amazing day in the day of Jesus. They try to catch Him in His words. And then next we see the Sadducees. They're going after Jesus and they're trying to twist the Scriptures to make Jesus look stupid in front of all these multitudes. And what you're going to see is so far, in the place where we're at, where we're getting towards the end of this day, this amazing day, and so far Jesus has dominated every discussion. 
Every single one of them. He's annihilated every attack. He's crushed every cross-examination on him or on his character. He's made the greatest scholars of his day look like preschoolers trying to stump Einstein. He's dominated these men. Not only that, he's also, in revealing their error, he's also revealed their, their sinfulness. These men are sinful, and they're out to get Jesus, and they have motives that are evil and wicked, and Jesus begins to expose it in front of all of these multitudes. And so far... During this long day of attack and attack and attack on Jesus, Jesus has been playing the defense. He's been receiving the questions. He's been knocking them down one after another. He's been, he's been on, on defense the whole time. He silenced his opponents. It says in the Scriptures there in chapter 12, after that, no one dared question Him. Jesus is about, okay, he's, he silenced his opponents, and now what we're going to see in our section, He's not done. He's about to go on the attack. He's already silenced him, now he's going for the jugular. It's about to go down in verse 35. Will you read it with me? <clears throat> verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself called him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. So here's what Jesus does. In verses, you got Jesus going on the offense in verses 35 through 37. Jesus is going on the offense, and here's how He does it. He lays out two questions, which are slightly different but very similar. They have the same aim. These two questions are found in verse 35 and verse 37. And then he gives them, he, he puts a Bible reference, an Old Testament Bible reference from Psalm 110 right up next to these two questions. And he leaves it right in front of these religious leaders, okay? So we got two questions here and a Bible reference. Now the two questions, let's, let's look at the two questions in verse 35, verse 37, and just get the plain sense of them, okay? Go with me here. <coughs> verse 35, look down to his question. How is it that the scribes, now the scribes, these would, have been, these would have been the Bible scholars of the day. How is it that these scribes say that the Christ, that's the Messiah, that's the anointed one, promised from all the way back into the Old Testament, promised that there was one coming called Christ, one coming called Messiah. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? You hear that question? Let me rephrase it. The scribes believe that a Christ is promised to come. And they say that He is the Son of David. He is a Son of David, the King of the Old Testament. He's a Son of David. Why, Jesus says. Why? How is it that they say such a thing? Alright, look at verse 37. The second question, very similar. A little bit more detail. Verse 37. Therefore David himself calls Him Lord. The Him here is that Christ. David calls the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, Lord. How is He then 
his son. All right, let me rephrase that. The scribes call the coming Christ David's son. But David himself did not say my son. He said, my Lord. If David calls the Christ Lord, how is the Christ David's son? So you following with me here? You're hearing the questions. You're understanding what his question is. How can he be David's son and yet David's Lord? Now Jesus has an aim here. He has an aim with his questioning. He's aimed at something. Listen, listen to what R.C. Sproul said. He said, Jesus' point is that the scribes have missed something about the Messiah. Yes, they know that there's a Messiah coming. Yes, they know there's a Christ coming. But they've missed something. And Jesus has an aim with these two questions in this Bible reference. He has an aim to show them who Christ really is. The prophesied one. Who He's really prophesied to be. And He has an aim to show them that. He wants to show them that He is the one prophesied in Psalm 110 verse 1 as Lord. The Lord of David. The God of David wrapped in flesh. Now you see... I want you to see this, that the, the Jews commonly assumed that the Christ would just be a mere man. Now, they thought he'd be a great man. He'd be an amazing man. He'd be like King David and he would, he would come and, and they didn't see him necessarily as God in the flesh. The Christ would be God in the flesh that would save souls from hell by dying for their sins. They didn't see it that way. They saw him as a man like David who would deliver the nation of Israel and make them a dominant nation again. And this was the common thought, but Jesus has an aim here. He wants to show them that the promised Messiah is more than human, but He is divine. Now, I want you to see that this is a really big deal. And here's why I say this is a really, really big deal. Because on this day, and since Jesus has shown up in Jerusalem, He has made it abundantly plain that He claims to be the Christ. He rode in on a donkey as a Zechariah 9-9 king while people hollered out to him, Son of David, which means the Christ. He's made it plain that he's the Christ. Not only that, when they, when they question his authority, he said he points them back to John the Baptist. And if you remember, John the Baptist said he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's already claimed to be the Christ. Then he quotes Psalm 118 verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected. And he applies it to himself. He is the Christ. Here's why this is a big deal. Then he turns the corner. And they're already mad at him for saying that he's the Christ. They already hate him for this. They already want to kill him for this. And then he ups the ante and he says, Hey, by the way, you've misinterpreted the Old Testament Scripture. The Christ is actually God. He's not just David's son. He's David's Lord. Can you imagine how this impacted him? Can you imagine they hate Him even more, right? Not only is He claiming to be Christ, but the Christ of the Old Testament who is Son of David and He's God Almighty. Now, I just want to get this out of the way here. Okay, Was the promised Messiah... Just it, Let's kind of slow down. Slow down here. Was the promised Messiah... Was He promised, was He prophesied to be a Son of David? Is that true? And the answer is yes. Let me give you a couple verses. This is all, I mean, it's literally all over the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at them all, but I'll give you one of the first verses. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. This is God speaking to David. Listen to it. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your, your own body and I will establish 
His kingdom. If you keep reading, it says forever. I will establish His kingdom forever. David, there's coming one through your seed. I'm going to establish His kingdom forever. He's going to be king forever. The Christ was prophesied to be a son of David. And you can see this all over the Old Testament. It's all over the place. And one place I want to, I want to read to you in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. This is referring to David. I want you to see that David knew this. David was not confused. He knew that the Christ was coming through the fruit of his body. He knew the Christ was coming through his lineage. Listen to Acts 2.30. Referring to David, it says, Being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So yes, the Christ, the promised Christ, was promised to be, was prophesied to be a son of David. And in, and in Jerusalem at this time, among, among these Jews, it was a very common thing to equate Christ with Son of David. They, meant, they were synonyms. They meant the same thing. Christ is the Son of David. Now, so if you look back at our questions, verse 35. <clears throat> verse 35 should be very easy to answer, right? Jesus asked this. How is it that the scribes say the Christ is the Son of David? That should be easy to answer, right? Well, because it's all over the Scriptures. I just read you a couple verses already. It's all over the Scriptures. That's how we know. That's easy to answer. And then when you get to verse 37, we're going to get a little bit of a difficulty here. Okay, notice the difference. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? If the promised Christ is David's son, Jesus says, why does David himself call the Christ Lord in Psalm 110 Verse 1, David's son means that the Christ is a man. And David's Lord means that he is God. Well, which one is it? Is Christ man or is he God? If he's David's son, how can he be David's Lord? No one looks at humans and says, that's, that's God, that's my Lord. And you definitely don't look at your son or your great-great-grandson and say, God, Lord, you just don't do that. So which is it? Is he David's son or is he David's Lord? What's up with this is the question. So here's what we have. Here's what we have. Common knowledge in Israel that the Messiah would be a man from the lineage of David. Very common. In Mark 10, 47, you remember even the blind beggar on the side of the street cried out. He said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Common knowledge throughout Israel that the Christ would be the son of David. But then Jesus raises a question to these men, to these scribes, and to these religious leaders. He raises a question that makes you, ask, makes you ask, who is this Christ really? Who is He? Who is this prophesied one? Who is the one that's promised to come? We know that He'll be a son of David. We know that He'll be a man, that He'll be king. But did David just... Did this scripture just say that his great-great-grandfather called him God before he was even born into the world? This is the question. Most of the Jews had allowed their neglect of the Old Testament and they allowed the traditions of men to skew their views of the coming Messiah. And therefore, they weren't looking for a Christ who would be God incarnate. And so Jesus poses these two questions and puts up this Bible reference right next to it. He says, David calls him Lord. How can he then be his son? Okay, so here's what we need. We need proof then. Jesus just said, that David called the Christ Lord before he was even born into the world. So, 
Where's that at? How do we know David really called him Lord? How do we know that that's true? And that's why he gives us the Bible reference in verse 36. Listen to the reference again. Right in the middle of the two questions. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies, <clears throat> until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110 to prove that the Christ is not only called a son of David, but he is David's Lord and God. And he's quoting from this. Okay, just think of the plain sense here. The Lord, Psalm 110.1, that he quotes, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, God, creator of the universe, said to my, David's writing, my Lord, Adonai. They're, they're, all through the Scriptures, they're the same person. And yet right here it says, the Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my God. The Christ is coming, the anointed one, and He calls Him Lord and God. Now, I, I want to keep going here, but let me make a quick side note before we move on. Quick side note here, okay? I want you to notice that the words of Jesus, according to this verse, if you look at verse 36 again, are by the Holy Spirit. The words of David, when he wrote Psalm 110, are by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says right here in verse 36. They are by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, David wrote Psalm 110. But who really wrote Psalm 110? The Holy Spirit. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19-21. through 21. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? Jesus Himself looks at David's writing. David's like the Holy Spirit's pencil. Okay, and He looks at David's writing and He says, those are by the Holy Spirit. So if somebody comes to you and says, what about, how do I know that Psalm 110 is from God? Wasn't it written by men? Would it written by a man somewhere? You quickly need to tell them the reason you know that Psalm 110 is from God is because Jesus, Jesus, you know the one that rose from the dead, said it's by the Holy Spirit. How do I know Psalm 110 is from God? I know it's His words and not just the words of a man. Because Jesus, the one who rose up from the grave, said that's the Word of God. That's by the Holy Spirit. That's like no other writings on earth. By the way, this is how you know across the board what is Scripture and what is not Scripture. This is how you know what is Scripture and what is not Scripture. Somebody comes to you and says, the 66 books of the Bible, how do I know? How do I know these are God's Word? Why should I believe that these are God's Word? Weren't they, weren't they written by men? And you tell them because Jesus said so. And Jesus rose from the dead. And a man who rises from the dead to live forevermore and ascends on high. And he's seen ascending on high to sit as King of kings and Lord of lords. Whatever He says goes, right? Whatever He says in Scripture is Scripture. Everybody cool with that way of thinking? And so what we see is this is how we know what books are from God. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament collection of books as by the Holy Spirit. Those are from the risen one, the one that rose from the dead, wrote those books. He is the one who affirmed this, therefore we believe Him. And Jesus also affirmed His apostles who would go on and have a connection to Him to write the rest of the New Testament Scriptures. This is how we know. So why don't we accept the Gospel of Thomas from the 2nd century? Or for that matter, the, the Gospel of Billy Bob from last week? 
Why don't we accept these things? Because we cannot connect them to the one who rose from the dead. We cannot connect them to the one who was seen ascending on high. And so this is how we know what Scripture is. This book is like no other book on earth. It's by the Holy Spirit. Back on track here. Can you get back on track with me? <clears throat> the verses, okay, think about Jesus. The verse has been quoted to these men. Psalm 110.1. The questions have been asked. How can he be son of David and yet David's Lord? How can he be both? The questions have been asked. And the point has been made that David called the Messiah Lord, God, Adonai. It's, it's as if Jesus looked at the religious leaders and said, he says, excuse me, religious leaders, I know that you see the prophesied Messiah as a son of David, a man. And, and you're right about that. You're right about that. But do you realize that he is also the Lord of David? He is David's God. And he, and he hangs it there. And this is the question. Now this question is posed like a cliffhanger question. It's just hanging out there and it never gets answered. It just hangs out there. He just asks a question and he's about to move on. But here's what you need to know. As we look at Psalm 110.1 and we think on Jesus' question and we begin to mull over and meditate over what is the answer to this? How can it be son of David and yet David's Lord? How can it be man and how can it be God? It said he's both. And as you begin to mull over these things, you're going to run into the most glorious, exalted thoughts that a human brain can think. One commentary said this. He said to answer... Jesus' question plunges one into the unfathomable wonder of the incarnation of God. The answer to this question plunges you into the thoughts of the unexplainable, glorious thoughts of the Trinity. It plunges you into things like the, the, the inexhaustible wonder of the hypostatic union. It, just, it plunges you right into all these amazing thoughts. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And so here's what I want to do. I want to meditate for just a minute with you guys together. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to meditate together on the answer to this question. How can he be David's son and yet David's Lord? How can he be David's son and yet David's sovereign? How can he be both? And so there's glorious truths, glorious truths that spring out of these two questions of this Bible reference. Glorious truths. And I'm going to speak them to you quickly. Each one of these, or both of these, deserve a sermon all by themselves. They deserve books and books and books all by themselves. And so I had to think long and hard about how to glory and worship in these glorious truths in just a couple paragraphs, okay? Number one, here's what we see from what he says. And as you mull over the answer to the question, how can he be David's son and yet David's Lord? And here's something you see. God is Trinity, as we sang just a moment ago. He is Trinity. As you search the Bible in search of the answer, who is God? You search the Bible, who is God? You come across the mind-blowing, shocking reality that God is Trinity. There's one God, not two, not three, not four, and all other so-called gods are false gods. They're fakes. They're counterfeits. There's only one true God. Listen to Isaiah 45.5. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. And so you say there's one true God. Who is this God? 
I want to know this God. And you begin to read the Bible. I want to know who this God is. And you find out God is God the Father. He's God, creator of the universe. God the Father. And you keep reading. Who is this God? And you run into the Son. And you see, God is God the Son. The Son is God. And then you keep reading. You run into the Holy Spirit. Say, the Holy Spirit is God. And you're amazed. And you say, there's, there's three gods, right? And you go, no, there's one God. There's actually one true God. In three persons, but one God. They're distinct from one another. The persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet, one true God. It's mind-blowing. Does it perplex you? And if it does, it's because you're not God. <laughs> you're not God. But He is. And this is mind-blowing. And it's amazing. And if you look in Mark 12, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 verse 1 and says, The Lord said to my Lord, and we get a little glimpse into this triune conversation going down where God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And you're blown away. They're one God. Another glorious truth, and this is honestly probably the one that Jesus intended to draw out. If somebody would think on the answer to his question, this is the main one that Jesus would tend to try, to try to draw out. And it's called, by many people, the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. And what this is, is one of the persons, there's three persons, one God, one of the persons of the only God, one of the persons, put that together, one of the persons, fry your brain on that for a minute, one of the persons, the only God, namely God the Son, took on human flesh. He added human nature. He didn't lose his divine nature, but he added human nature to his divine nature in the hypostatic union. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. He's not half God, half man. He's fully God and fully man. He's 100% God and 100% man. Jesus has been God for all of eternity and about 2,000 years ago, He added human nature to His divine nature. And now for all of eternity, He is fully God and fully man. Is blowing your mind? And we see Jesus pulling this truth out as He explains it here in Mark chapter 12. That Christ is David's son, born of a man, a man himself. And yet He's David's Lord. He's the God of all eternity. He's David's son and He's David's sovereign. He was born after David, but existed before David. He's David's great-great-great-grandson, and yet he created David's great-great-great-grandpa. This is awesome. So why? So stop for a minute. Okay, these are glorious truths. You see these things coming out. He's, he, the Lord, Psalm 121, the Lord said to my Lord, and then he says, how can he be David's son, and he is, and also be David's Lord? How do these things come together? Okay. Now here's what I want to ask you, okay? Why would God take on human nature? Why would God the, the divine, why would he add to his nature a human nature? Why would he take on flesh? Why would he do that? And just as Jesus left a cliffhanger question just a moment ago, I'm going to leave you with one too. And I'll answer it in a minute. For now, let's move on. How the people respond? <clears throat> How will the people respond to these things? Look at, at the end of verse 37. <clears throat> and the common people heard him gladly. 
So here's all the multitudes, the throngs, the multitudes. They heard Jesus gladly. The NAS actually translates it better. It says it like this. The large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now at first, I was seeing that as a good thing. Jesus dominating every discussion. He just, he claims to be Christ. He shows that he's God. And I thought, man, this is a good thing. The multitudes are enjoying listening to him. But then the more I thought about it, I realized that this is absolutely pitiful. They enjoyed listening to him. Wouldn't you rather hear it say, and they fell on their face before God Almighty who had come in flesh to save them from their sins. Isn't that what you would rather hear them say? Isn't that what you would rather read here? But it says they enjoy listening to him. This is not the proper response to realizing that Jesus is the Lord, the God Adonai, God Almighty come in flesh. This is not the right response. And this reminded me of something that's very popular. It's C.S. Lewis's uh, little argument. Liar, lunatic, Lord. You ever heard that argument? Liar, lunatic, Lord. What C.S. Lewis says, he says, it is patronizing nonsense to say that Jesus is just a good teacher. Now, to put it in this verbiage from this verse, it is patronizing nonsense to just enjoy his teaching. I just enjoy listening to him teach. It's just patronizing nonsense according to C.S. Lewis. So here's what they must do. They must, this is the argument, they must, in regards to what Jesus has said, he's just claimed to be Lord, the Christ, God in the flesh, they must come against him as a liar that just said he was God. Liar. Or they must run from him as a lunatic because he's claiming to be God. Who knows what else he'll do? Lunatic. Or they must bow down before him as Lord, as God. That's David's God and that's my God. And they must bow down before him. And yet they give the patronizing nonsense. They enjoyed his teaching. And maybe that's why in a couple of days the same crowds were crucified. So what would the proper response be? Bow down, worship, eternal God who's taken on flesh. You are David's son, and yet you are David's God. But they don't do that. They enjoy listening to him. In verse 38, beginning in verse 38, Jesus is going to give these people a stern warning. A stern warning. So let's go to that, verse 38 through 40. This is the warning to the people. The warning to the people. Nobody could answer Jesus' question. And now he gives a warning to the people. Read it with me, verse 38. Then he said to them, the them is these happy multitudes. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes. The scribes are those men, those Bible scholars. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. So Jesus had a full day. He's had a full day of conflict, a full day of of teaching. And these people don't fall down before Him. They just enjoy listening to Him. Jesus doesn't get giddy over the attention. He doesn't get real caught up in all these people like me. They like me. They like me. He doesn't care about that. He blurts out this stern warning to them. He says, beware. In verse 38, beware. He he belts out a stern warning against false teachers and false leaders called scribes right here in this verse. Beware. He says, beware. 
Beware is a sign you put in your backyard to tell people to watch out for a dog that will devour you. And here Jesus looks and He says, Beware of these religious leaders. Beware of them. Jesus knows that the multitudes are enjoying listening to Him, but in just a few days they will be gung-ho about crucifying Him. Therefore, He says, Beware. He gives them a sober warning. Beware these teachers, these religious leaders who will lead you to the condemnation of hell. Beware of them. Now let me ask a question. And I want to dig into more of what he said in just a moment. But let me ask a question. Is there ever a time to call out false teachers? Is there ever a time to call out straightforward, bold, call out false teachers? And I think you have to say absolutely yes, right? We just saw Jesus do it. I mean, he's in the multi, he's among the multitudes, and there's this, the scribes see it. The religious leaders are right there, and in the presence of those multitudes, he lets out a warning against these men. Now, I want you to think about this. So here's Jesus, all the mass multitudes, the leaders are right over there, and he's saying, Beware of these men, they're going to receive greater condemnation. They're standing right there. And if you think that's hardcore, you should read the account in Matthew 23. See, we have a condensed version in verse 38 through 40. A condensed version in Mark. But in Matthew 23, it's 39 verses of this exact same warning. So we have the condensed version, but when you read the account in Matthew 23, not only does Jesus look at the multitudes and warn against the false teachers in their presence, but then He turns His gaze to those false teachers. He looks them square in the eye and He begins to rebuke them and call them out right in the midst of the multitudes. I want you to try to imagine it. According to Matthew 23, He looks them right in the eye. And eight times He says, Woe to you! These are words of condemnation, of judgment. Woe to you, he says to him eight times, looking him right in the face. Seven times he says, you hypocrites. You say, but you don't do. You look spiritual on the outside, but inside you are dead. Three times he says, you blind gods. You blind gods. Twice he calls them fools. How foolish to set yourself up for self-glory and love self-glory when the consequences are eternal hell. Fools. And in Matthew 23, 33, he says this. Now imagine yourself. Imagine yourself looking a false teacher right in the eye and saying this. Matthew 23, 33. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? And here's what I want you to think about. In this day's world, being a nice person, being nice is like the epitome of Christ-likeness. But apparently being nice is not always Christ-like. Jesus does not play nice. I hope you see it. He does not play nice with false teachers and corrupt shepherds. He does not play nice with them. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to look directly at what he said in verse 38 through 40. Just look right at it with me, okay? What does he say to him? First thing he says, <coughs> he says, Beware of the scribes. Be on alert. Warning. Beware of false teachers. Now, how should this land on them? The multitudes are listening. How should this land on them in that moment? They should know. Beware of their influence in your life. Jesus already warned them in Matthew 15. He said, he said, stay away from them because the blind, when the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a ditch. He's already warned them. Beware of their influence and their leading in your life. And also beware of becoming like them. 
And so Jesus is going to give us the characteristics of these false teachers. And our warning is beware of their influence and be, be warned and, and, and beware of becoming like them. Okay, so let's look at their characteristics. First thing we see about their character, characteristics. It says, you see it right here in verse 38. Who desire to go around in long robes. They have these long robes, beautiful Garbs, right? These long robes. They, they just desired to go around in their long robes. You see, their religion was all external. Everything was external. They loved people to see them looking spiritual, wearing their religious garb. They loved this kind of thing that people would actually see them. Matthew 23 verse 5 says, All their works they do to be seen by men. All oh, they love getting seen is spiritual. Matthew 23, 27 says they are like whitewashed tombs. They appear beautiful outwardly, but inside they're like dead men's bones. They had the outward forms, but they missed the heart. And these were these false teachers. Secondly, we see this. Then we see that they, they loved, and this is going to be in the next phrase where it says they love greetings. And what we're going to see here is they love recognition. They love status. They love this spiritual pride. Just see the spiritual pride here. They love to be seen. They love to be lifted up. Listen to it. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts. And so you see the love they have for self-glory. Matthew 23, verse 7 says, They love to be called rabbi, rabbi, teacher. Teacher, they loved it when men would honor them and esteem them with these titles of rabbi and teacher and doctor and reverend. They loved this sort of thing. They loved self-glory. And then third, they were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. Now, we already know that they're lovers of money from earlier in the scripture. Luke 16, 14, it literally Jesus says they were lovers of money. Okay? But I see it in this phrase in verse 40. Who devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. Now, what does this mean? They would devour widows' houses. This doesn't mean they would blatantly and openly go in and just steal their stuff away. Everybody would know that was God, ungodly. Everybody would know this was sinful. Everybody would know this was wrong. Instead, what they would do is they would deceitfully use their status as a leader to suck these vulnerable widows out of their property, out of their money, out of their stuff. You see this example in the next story that's coming up. After Jesus gives this rebuke is the story of a, of, a, of, a, of a poor widow who only has a mite. And she got, this is literally the next story. She only has a mite. And she comes and she lays into the treasury all that she has. And this is, this is the picture, okay? This is the picture. These men would use their spiritual influence, their leadership, and they would suck these poor women out of their money, out of their possessions. And I can't help when I think about that. I cannot help when I think about application. How do I apply this to the day like, False teachers that devour widows' houses. How do I apply this sort of thing? And I cannot help but think about prosperity preachers of our day. Can you think about it? Men who look at even poor people, even poor people in, some poor, in one of the poorest countries in Africa, and they, and they look at these people and they say, give me all your money and God will bless you. Doesn't that sound very similar? Characteristics of the false teachers. Last thing on the characteristics of the false teachers. It says at the very end, the very end of verse 40. <clears throat> For a pretense, they make long prayers. Pretense means they're pretending. They're pretending to have communication with God, but they have no communication with God. In fact, they pretend their way all the way to hell, which comes to the condemnation. The last sentence there. The condemnation of the false teachers, it says this. They will receive greater condemnation. 
They will receive greater condemnation. Condemnation in hell is horrific. Can you imagine greater condemnation in hell? This is horrific. And he says, you're going to come under greater condemnation. When you set yourself up as a leader and you lead others unfaithfully, you lead them into ditches, you lead them for your own self-glory, for your own will, Romans 2.5 says, you are just storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. More and more wrath. Now, I want to make a few observations on this rebuke in verse 38 through 40. Okay? I just want to make a few observations. So, so we're just kind of we're just talking about the rebuke he gave, the, the warning he gave, the beware he gave in verse 38 through 40. I want to give a few observations. Observation number one is this: do not play patty cake with false teachers. It's popular in this culture to hold a conversation. I just want to hold a conversation with them, with the false teachers. I want to just find common ground with them. And yet here you see Jesus exposes them and their false teaching with the Word of God, straightforward boldness. He exposes the false teachers. May we be those who speak up like Jesus and don't shrink back like the Corinthians. You remember the Corinthians? Paul said, I fear for you. Lest somebody come and they preach another Jesus and you put up with it. And so may we be like Jesus who speaks up. May we be like Jesus who of jealous love for the people of God, jealous love even for the multitudes, come against in mercy. This is a merciful act to stand up and rebuke a false teacher that would lead many to hell. And, and he stands up and he, and he gets straight into, in their face and he deals with it. What love, what jealous love for these people, what jealous love for the truth, and may we be like him. Are you equipped for this? Let me read you a quick verse. Are you equipped for this? Listen to Titus 1.9. This is talking about a requirement for a leader, which all of us are supposed to look to as an example. Holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught. Are you equipped for this? Holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Why would he need to do that? Verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Are you equipped for these things? Are you ready to come against false teaching? Second observation. <clears throat> the, the characteristics that we see in these false teachers that Jesus confronts, these characteristics we see, I want to encourage you to beware of allowing these sinful patterns into your life. Beware of allowing these sinful patterns into your life. Do not play nice with sin in your life. When you allow these sinful characteristics to linger, you are allowing things to linger that Jesus said is worthy of greater condemnation. Don't allow these sins to linger. When you see, like they had, the external religious things staying intact, but the heart is cold towards God, go to war. All out war. The Bible says, God, your heart in the way. Do the secret things that only God sees. It's not just external and everybody else sees it. Do the secret things that even, even uh, nobody sees it but God Himself. Think about it. When's the last time it happened? Is your religion just external? Are you tempted to just do things to be seen by others? Or is it a heart religion that you walk with God when it's just you and Him alone? You have integrity 
Another thing, when you see the love of self-glory, just like these men, when you see the love of self-glory and status and recognition rising up in your heart, what ought you to do? Go to war over this desire for self-glory. Confess it to God immediately. Confess it to your brothers and sisters quickly. Take drastic action. Proverbs 30 verse 30 verse 32 says, If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, self-glory, put your hand on your mouth. Take drastic action. Be sure to be faithful in the things that bring you zero glory. Be faithful in those things. Are you willing to be a forgotten, no-name slave of King Jesus and He gets all the glory? I want to put out a quick warning. If you are a hypocrite, who loves to be seen. And everything you do in religion, it's all just to be seen by me. This is, I, I do it more when other people are looking. If that's you, I want you to know that your joy, your joy and your pleasure is only for a moment, but there are eternal consequences. It's only for a moment. Listen to Job 20 verse 5. The joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. Don't fall prey to the sin. <clears throat> Last one you see. When you feel the love of money, these guys had a love for money, right? When you feel the love of money or possessions rising up in you, what do you do? Go to war. Don't take this lightly. 1 Timothy 6. I just want to read this to you. I wasn't going to read it to you, but I want to read it to you. Never let this warning grow common to you. Don't let it grow dull in your heart. Listen to this warning. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Will you take heed to these words? When you feel the love of money rising on your soul, go to war. Now maybe you say this. Maybe you say, well, I don't, I don't see myself you know, manipulating widows to get their stuff, to get their possessions, to get their money. Maybe you say that, okay? But I want you to think about this. What are you doing with your... I'm talking about the love of money here. What are you doing with the resources God has given you? What are you doing with them? There are widows who are in need, orphans who are in need, poor who are in need, missionaries who have needs. And what does your secret giving say about your heart? What does your heart to give say about... What does what your giving show about your... Heart to give. Are your resources all swallowed up in feeding your own selfish desires? Do you have a love of money? Be warned. Third thing I want to pull out, observation. That's two observations. I want to give you another observation from this warning in verse 38 through 40. Observation. There's a principle, okay, when Jesus looked at these teachers and says, you're going to have greater condemnation, there's a principle undergirding that thought, Okay. Namely this, Jesus said it. He said, to whom much is given, from him much will be required. That's a principle that lies underneath Jesus looking at these leaders to whom much had been given. They had been given much influence among the people. And much is going to be required of them. And when they, and when they use it for their own self-glory, you know what happens? They get greater condemnation. So here's the principle. To whom much is given... From Him, much will be required. So what I want to do is apply this principle to all of us here. <clears throat> I just want to apply the principle to every person here, okay? The principle can be applied not only to teachers and leaders, right? In fact, if you, if you read, let me read you a verse. Matthew chapter 11, 
This is not talking about teachers and leaders here. Listen to 11.21. Woe to you, Sherazen. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Do you see this? These people, there were some cities, some towns, they were receivers of greater revelation of the truth of God. They received more revelation of the truth of, truth of God than Tyre and Sidon did. And he says, they're going to have it easier. Okay, your condemnation is going to be greater. Do you see this applied? Not only to teachers and leaders, which is a big deal, but also to all people that sit under greater revelation of the truth of God. When you've been given greater revelation than others in the truth of God, to whom much is given, from them much will be required. So here's what I want to tell you. In a sense, then, if this is true, then in a sense, one of the most dangerous places to be on earth is consistently sitting under the truth of God's Word and sound doctrine. Because if you turn from it and reject it, you will receive greater condemnation. And in one sense, maybe it's the safest place to be. But in a sense, it's one of the most dangerous places to be. Okay, So I want to say this then. If you're here and you've heard consistently the gospel of Jesus Christ, maybe even here, maybe just because you live in a place where the Bible is free, you're very accessible to the Bible, and you've heard the gospel over and over and over again, you've heard the truth, you even know the truth, if you reject it, I plead with you, I plead with you, flee from the wrath that comes, flee from the greater condemnation that comes. I plead with you. Now, think about this principle, okay? To whom much is given, from them much will be required. This means, okay, Think what this means. Think about what this means for so many Christians here in this room who have sat under great revelation of the truth of God. It has been revealed to you, the truth of God, in abundance. Think about what this means for you. Think of the responsibility that is laid at your feet. Think about it with me. You've been given the Word of God in your own language when so many people in the world have no access or limited access to the Word of God. What will you do with it? To whom much is given, from them much will be required. You've had more knowledge of God preached into your ear than most people have ever dreamed of. Think of the freedom you have to meet with the church of God and sit under sound doctrine. Think of the freedom you had to go to your Bible, the freedom you have to go to the internet and find sound teaching all over the place. Think about it. What will you do with this? To whom much is given, from Him much will be required. Think of your freedom to travel. And even relocate for the glory of God and for the advancement of His kingdom. While while there's many people on earth that their governments restrict them. Their poverty restricts them. They can't go places like you. It doesn't even hit your mind that you might not be able to go. What will you do with this that's been given to you? To whom much is given, from Him much will be required. And lastly here, let let me loop back quickly. I want to loop back. It's my last... If you didn't hear anything else, listen to me now. <clears throat> I want to loop back around to what Jesus said, that question from earlier, my cliffhanger question I put in front of you. Okay? Jesus claimed to be what? David's son and yet David's Lord. I want to make a couple of observations here, okay? Now, earlier I said that Jesus' claim to be David's son and David's Lord, to be fully God and to be fully man, I called that what? 
the hypostatic union, okay? The hypostatic union. Now let's talk for a minute about the reason for the hypostatic union. Why would God Almighty, why would one of the persons of the only God take on flesh? Why would He take a human nature onto Himself? And let's talk about that for just a minute. It was God's mission to rescue us. Why did He take on flesh? It was God's mission to rescue us. We are sinful creatures to the core. Ephesians 2.3 says, By nature, we're children of wrath. We deserve wrath by our very nature. It's at the core of who we are. And because of our sin, we are deserving of death. We deserve death. And in this incarnation, in, in the hypostatic union, He's going on a rescue mission to save us. But I want you to think about this. Our only hope is what? We deserve death and our only hope is that somebody would come in and they would die for us as our substitute. That is our only hope. And this is the reason God gives so much symbolism in the Old Testament of animal sacrifice. To bring the animal up. You're the sinner that deserves to die, but lay your hands on the animal. Confess your sins over it and the sins go into the animal. Slaughter the animal instead of yourself a substitute. And God gives us this all the way through the Old Testament to help us see that this is our need. We need somebody to step in and be a substitute on our behalf. But what's the problem? No one was found worthy. No one was found worthy to be the substitute. Everyone else has their own sins to deal with and that they must die for themselves. And even if they had no sin, they still would not be worthy. No one's pure enough. No one's powerful enough. No one is loving enough. Except God. Except God. He's the only one. God's the only one. But another problem. God can't die. How can God die? God's the only one powerful enough. He's the only one loving enough. But He cannot die. God is spirit. God is eternal. God is indestructible. He could not die as your substitute. And thus we have the hypostatic union. God the Son takes on human flesh. He takes on human nature to Himself in order to die. In order to lay down His life and die as a substitute in your place. David's Lord became David's Son to rescue us from death. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. John 3.17 Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Romans 3.24 God set forth Jesus as the wrath bearer, as the propitiation by His blood. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Galatians 4.4 4. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for all. Hebrews 2.9 Do not be like those people who just enjoy His teaching straight to hell. Don't be those people. He's the Savior come in the flesh, Son of David. He's the Lord who reigns forever as David's God. To enjoy His teaching is not enough. You must turn whatever it is that keeps you from this one, Son of David, Son of God, whatever it is that keeps you from Him, you must turn from whatever it is and put your hope, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and turn to Him 
in faith is what you must do. And He promises that every person who does that, He says, He saves them from death. He's taken your death for you. And I praise God that many of you, I look across this room, brothers and sisters I love, I praise God that so many of you have done that. That so many of you have been saved from the death and from the everlasting wrath that's coming. But listen to me, if you have not, if you're here and you have not turned to Christ, do not let these truths pass by your ear today and not save you, but rather add to your severity in hell. Don't let that happen to you. Let's pray. Lord, You are so good, so glorious, so great. You're beyond explanation, Lord. And I praise You that You gave us Your Word just to try, so that we could try to understand. God, I pray for every soul here. God, put, put eternity in front of us, even right now. Every believer, every lost person, put eternity in front of our eyes right now, Lord. God, help us to see that this is just a life that's just for a moment, God, and then all of eternity, all of eternity. And I pray for any person here, God, that You would take anyone who's lost, anyone who doesn't know You, even if they're not sure, and You'd save their souls, Lord. Bring them out of darkness into light, God. You've shown Your love for them and that You died for them. I pray that they would love You. And God, for every believer here, everyone converted, I pray for worship from the heart, God. Worship from the heart. In Jesus' name, amen.